Welcome to Insights with Sights, the Symphony of Scripture, a weekly podcast exploring the themes and contours of the weekly scripture readings. For more information about the podcast or to download the companion notes, please visit slash podcast We now join our host, the Reverend Dr. Christopher Seitz. We come to the second Sunday of Lent in our Symphony of Scripture series, and our lessons are the covenant with Abraham and Sarah in Genesis 17, Paul's reflections on Abraham and his faith from Romans 4, nine verses of Psalm 22, and the open and direct announcement of Jesus in Mark 8 of his intention to go to Jerusalem. The metaphor of a symphony commends itself because it describes so very well the character of Scripture in its parts and as a whole. The Holy Spirit's conducting baton, signaling first this instrument, dampening that one, calling for more from the seemingly incidental oboe or French horn, bringing into concert the waters of creation, and the waters of the Jordan, the resolute watching and following of Elisha, and the Lord's seeking to make Peter into the same, the ark and baptism, the immediately of Nineveh and of Galilee, John the Baptist and his forerunner Elijah, a wilderness tempting at Sinai and at the Jordan, a promised wolf lying down with lamb, and Jesus at peace with the beasts. Old and new, former and latter, elder and younger, the lessons move back and forth like a weaver's shuttle, not a single direction, but as in a symphony, mutually reinforcing and coordinating the providential disclosing of God's purposes through time. In Mark's gospel, the announcement by Jesus that he will go up to Jerusalem and there be crucified and rise again is stated three times. Peter can only hear the former bit, persecution and execution, and does not like the full scenario in any case. He rebuts Jesus and is himself rebutted, sternly corrected, and put in his place publicly before colleagues and fellow risk-taking followers. In the next two occurrences in Mark's gospel, and by his simple moving forward toward this divine goal, we find the twelve quieter in response and moving along with him. There is some mysterious pedagogy at work, perhaps set in motion by Jesus' firm handling of Peter today. And perhaps the mountaintop scene, a final glory he and James and John share. Who knows? The Gospel of John has its own version of this where it's Peter who concedes, To whom shall we go? For you have the words of eternal life. Our readings from Romans, Romans like last Sunday, a special selection for the day, and from Genesis, 
obviously set before us the man Abraham and his wife Sarah. That is, there's nothing intrinsic to Mark's gospel that we might observe that links the text to Abraham in something of the way we often observe that, as with Elijah last week or Samuel or Jonah in weeks preceding. The Titus link, the orchestration, the weaver's shuttle, is clearly from Romans to Genesis via the figure of ancestor Abraham and Sarah, his wife. Paul's point is that Abraham's faith in God preceded the giving of the law, and it occurred before the command to circumcise in Genesis before the law came. It came when he was old and had no reason to ground his faith in what God was promising, land, children, and home, in anything in the human realm, only in God's word to him. Here Paul, in Romans 4, is referring to the faith of Abraham, such as it's described in chapter 15 of Genesis, where the author says that his trust in God was accounted to him as righteousness, a righteousness apart from the law. But Paul wants to build on a further point, out beyond the initial promise and the initial response in faith in chapter 12 and its reiteration in chapter 15. So he turns to Genesis 17. Abraham is told he will be a father of many nations, and not just one. His progeny will be as the sands of the sea, so Genesis 15, and will also constitute beyond that many nations and not one bursting at the seam alone. His changed name underscores it from Abram to Abraham, father of many nations. Here the choice of Genesis 17 is our first reading, building upon the first and second encounters of God with Abraham is chosen. Paul probably has all three episodes in his mind as he stresses that the promised Abraham's progeny will be the multitude of nations who now call him their father and not just those who in time were given the law. This makes the reference, of course, to never wavering in faith a touch ironic for the careful reader of the Genesis chapters. Both Abraham and his wife take the promise after three declarations and the birth of Ishmael as an option B as worth something of a good laugh. But Paul's point is likely that they kept receiving and holding to God's promises in spite of all and even with a laugh first from Abraham and then from Sarah, to relieve this couple now in their 90s. The three solemn encounters with God compounded their need for patient waiting, but it also enlarged the promise in a way Paul sees as anticipating each and every one of us from all nations in Christ. Now the words it was reckoned to him were written not for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul writes, 
It will be reckoned to us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was handed over to death for our trespasses and was raised for our justification. The psalm nicely captures the force of what Paul is seeing retrospectively and what Abraham might have said prospectively from Paul's vantage point. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, the psalm reads, and all the families of the nations shall bow down before him, for kingship belongs to the Lord. My soul shall live for him, and my descendants shall serve him, and they shall be known as the Lord's forever. In the gospel reading for today, we are wrapping up our six-Sunday walk through the early chapters of Mark. Today, with a selection appropriate for Lent from Mark chapter 8, next week we will turn to the Gospel of John. Mark says that here Jesus speaks openly and directly. Let there be no doubt that this plain speaking comes as a strong force is evident from the response. Whatever the disciples might have intimated of Jesus' ultimate mission during their time with him until now, we may assume was minimal halfway through Mark's narrative line. Whatever else they knew about Jesus, they have come to know him as a relentless, powerful, triumphant, indefatigable and unstoppable life force, a man among men unlike men, and suddenly he speaks of a stopping in death, in an unspeakable death, and so taken by Peter to be a death that should not be part of what they have witnessed thus far, should not be and need not be. His private rebuke is met in turn with a public rebuke from his Lord, stern and unwavering. At least this much is clear. Whatever Jesus is bringing to his relentless public ministry in this life, he is bringing as well to his final confrontation in death. And not just bringing it, here we have no martyr, but seeing to its final accomplishment describing its details. This must be why the final part of the design, the rising on the third day, just doesn't seem to be heard at all, given the route to it. And so it offers no mitigation. Jesus is neither a martyr, but nor is he a superman, meriting our awe either. Peter, that Peter rebukes and is rebuked, is part of the very real drama unfolding, stripped of myth or of tragedy. Jesus looks at each one of them, the text says, when he delivered the rebuke to Peter. This will be neither myth nor tragedy, but God's way of confronting Satan and defeating him in all his guises, even ones that co-opt his disciples in their fear and in their efforts to create alternative plans. No, Jesus will show himself fully able to walk this road ahead. 
He requires for assistance nothing from men and women except their presence with him and their testifying to a death that will lead to new life. Abraham stepped out onto a road whose direction and purpose he did not know in detail, guided only by the God who would tell him three times formally that he would be good to his word. Alternative schemes and doubt and detours and stifled laughs came on the road he and Sarah were following in faith. The sheer implausibility did not include their dying. Most of their life was behind them now. But it did involve dying to what was familiar and what could have made worldly sense for the balance of their days. Instead, they heard God's voice. They followed. They left familiar ways to head onto a king's highway. Jesus asks his disciples to follow, to listen, to listen to God's Son, as we heard last Sunday. The cross they take up, we take up, is one he has made for them and for us, and which is a yoke which lifts off life's burdens in exchange for the profit of a new and eternal life in him. We hope you enjoyed Insights with Sights, the symphony of scripture. For archived episodes and notes, please visit www.wickliffcollege.ca/podcast. Thank you, and we hope you tune in again. This podcast is a ministry of Wickliffe College at the University of Toronto.